You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to join me in um, our final chapter of Acts and Acts 28. Um, this has been a long um, uh, series that we've got going last fall, and just, you know, we're committed to the idea of, like, if this is a photo book, photo book with open pages uh, at the end of it, we want to know um, the history of the story because we want to know how we can participate in it. Uh, that, uh, as it says in, in the beginning, dear Theophilus, that I'll tell you what it begins with, but I want you to continue with the ends of the earth and continue on what Jesus has started um, in this church is uh, where we started. So we're finishing up in uh, Acts uh, chapter 28 and get into James um, next, week, next week. But um, uh, it's not one of my favorite, uh, most proud moments, you know, as a, as a human being here on this earth, but um, I was a middle schooler just like you, making dumb decisions at some point, you know, just like you. Uh, and um, so when I moved uh, from Albany, New York to uh, South Bend, Indiana, it was uh, kind, of a, kind of a culture shock for me. A lot more pickup trucks uh, in Indiana. They went to school in the dark, I remembered, because of daylight savings time. It was super weird the first couple hours. Um, uh, they had different uh, words. Like, I remember they were real big back then using the word shady. They'd be like, that's shady. This is shady. I don't even know if people said that anymore. I used to say the word mad in Albany, like this was mad cool. And uh, looking back on that, shady was probably cooler to say than, than mad. But anyways, um, tried to make my way. And um, uh, during the first couple of uh, weeks before I met Kyra, uh, I came uh, thick as thieves. I came buddies with this guy named Anwar, who uh, if you've ever seen the movie Hook before, that guy with the like, little sailor outfit on uh, that kind of had the husky laugh, he kind of reminded me of that. And so Anwar was the guy with the, with, the, with the laugh in the back of class that would like, once you started laughing, like you wouldn't stop laughing. And he would probably start talking about farts or something. And then after that, it was just all over, you know, for the whole thing. And um, I remember he would, uh, we'd play basketball during uh, recess. There's a lot of kids didn't play basketball, uh, sweating up their Tommy Hilfiger shirts or whatever. But uh, me and Anwar did. And so, uh, but he would talk trash, but like a 60-year-old, he'd be like, whoa, 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 I'm taking you to school. And then he'd like throw an air ball up and he'd be like, next time, you know, um, but he was kind of like an old man, you know, in a, in a young person's body. And, um, and it was a sad moment, like I said, not my proudest moment. Uh, but I remember um, there's a guy uh, named, named Chad uh, at our school. Ch- Chad Raptus uh, pulled me aside uh, one day and uh, was probably looking out for me, trying to do uh, his best towards me, thinking about me being a new guy. And he was like, hey, man, listen, I just want to give you a little word of advice. You probably don't want to hang out with Anwar. And I was like, oh, no, Anwar. What's the, like, what? He seems like a great guy. I like Anwar. And he was like, you probably don't want to hang out with Anwar. And he kind of used some classist type of terms about, you know, which side of the tracks he grew up and all that kind of thing. And he was like, you know, and he's kind of a smelly kid. And like, once he said that, I was like, he is kind of smelly. He does need to get some deodorant. I'll give him that. Um, but, um, but yeah, he kind of like w- walked me through. This is uh, Chad speaking to me about this guy, Anwar. And um, from the beginning of that conversation to the end of that conversation, my opinion on Anwar d- deeply changed. Um, because... Um, yeah, just like I think um, I grew up in a, in a place in New York where everybody was kind of coming from a different place. It was a very diverse thing, and so conformity wasn't the goal. It was trying to be a rebel and be a jerk was what you're trying to do as a teenager. But there in Indiana, there was kind of a homogenousness. There was kind of like a, this is the way you should dress, this is the way you should talk. And it became very apparent to me, like, if I was going to be friends with Anwar, I probably couldn't be friends with many other people and had to make that decision. So I remember um, coming to the lunchroom the next day, you know, before basketball, and uh, Anwar was waving it to me at the table, and the other kids were waving me at the table, and I had a choice, and, uh, and I didn't choose Anwar. Um, I, I knew that, um, that uh, probably back then, as Chad would have said, it would have been a social suicide, you know, to hang out 
um, with the likes, but, um, but um, it's not necessarily my, my proudest moment. Uh, when you're an outsider, you know, in any group, let alone being a middle schooler, which is, of course, is a very painful place to be, um, you always tell yourself the next time you get inside, you'll think about how hard it is to be an outsider. Every time when you're an outsider at a new place of job or you're at a new church or you're, you know, at a new school, you, you make yourself a note like, <clears throat> I'm not going to be like one of those jerks that kicks other kids out of the circle because I know how hard it is. But it's funny that the power of inclusion, once you get on the other side of that line and you become an insider, how quickly you can forget what it feels like to be an outsider and how quickly the very same walls that you used to be up against to try and climb over or get through or break through uh, are the same walls that you start building up once you're on the inside because once you're on the inside, you see things like an insider does and you forget really quickly what it's like and how it feels to be, to be an outsider. And so, um, you know, I know, uh, for example, with um, uh, uh, Dave Ramsey, you know, he's got a huge multi-million dollar company and, and he made a profound statement on his podcast one time. The first 60 days as a person is assimilated into the culture of the Dave Ramsey uh, act your wage program or whatever it is, um, uh, when they're coming in, that he asks them a lot of questions because he knows within 60 days that person uh, that is coming into the program is seeing things and noticing things that need to change and celebrating the right things about the company that once they're in 60 days, they totally see the company you know, inside out differently than they used to see from the outside in. And, um, and it's also you know, powerful when you think about race. You know, I used to be a history teacher and you know, there's lots of studies about, you know, the power of the slavery system is a, the power of color, that uh, in every social caste system and slavery system, whether it be Latino or whether it be, you know, like American, North American uh, slave system, is that uh, the use of shades and pigments of skin color of somebody that um, is, is light-skinned enough is actually able to make it up the ranks. And it's funny how quickly the person that used to be considered lowly and on the outside, once they're brought in to be an insider, uses their power that used to be against them, against their brother, against their sister. How powerful that is of, of what it means to be an insider. And, and what it's like even in church, right, to, to come along and, um, you know, in youth group, I remember um, uh, listening to this girl's testimony and they were asking her, you know, do you feel like, you know, church is a welcoming place and a hospitable place. This is a newer girl in a, in a, in a different youth group. And, and she said, yes, yes, yes. And then finally she kind of paused and she said, but I still feel like I'm a little bit of an outsider. And she talked about the type of water bottle that the other girls had and the type of ponytail that the other girls had and the other things that, that felt like it kept her from, from being an insider. Um, that line is a powerful line for those that are on either side of it. And so we're coming to the end of Acts um, here, and Dr. Luke is going to close up a real anthematic, you know, long, long book in Acts chapter 28 with a really interesting uh, closing remark here. And uh, what he chooses to do at the end of the book of Acts is he, um, he, he talks about, he reintroduces Isaiah chapter 6 um, at this little prophecy at the very end of the book um, to end the book of Acts by grieving the loss of the Jews. That's... Um, that in the storyline of the book of Acts from Acts chapter 1-8 to first start in Jerusalem and then Judea and the ends of the earth, that God is going and God goes with those who go. And he is on the move and he's making a way to the peripherals not to just be insiders and coddling, playing favorites with the insiders, but to make his way to the outsiders that insiders are brought in to go out. And one of the sad parts about this is, is that as it goes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, that some of the Jews accept, but many of them reject. And so there's this sad grieving process that happens. And we kind of read this, and a lot of times, like we read most of uh, the Bible, we think about, you know, the Jewish story is like, I'm glad I'm not Jewish. I don't know what to say. You know, like, it's an irrelevant 
religious kind of artifact. Like, why would that matter in 2023, you know, what happened to the Jews or what's happening to the Jews? And, and, and can I suggest to you, probably the reason why it's there in the end of Acts is not because this is uh, a story about being Jewish or, you know, being grateful that God moved out of Judaism and into Christianity. But this is not a Jewish story, really. That in Isaiah chapter 6, what he's sharing is a human story. That he's sharing what ultimately became, in the Old Covenant, a case study for all of humanity. That the case study uh, for all of, uh, all of humanity is this, is that in the beginning with Abraham, that God promised a very special, special blessing to Abraham, and, and, and he poured out on these people everything that was necessary for life and, and spirituality with God. And he gave these Jews the, the laws and the prophets. He gave these Jews testimonies in the Red Sea. He gave these Jews power and the presence of God within their tabernacle. He gave these, these Jews everything. And here was the plot twist. Here was why it happened. Um, because ultimately, these Jews, although we thought they were going to be the examples, the plot twist is they became the non-examples. They became a case study for what it's like to have everything, to have all of the spiritual blessings that God would have given a covenant people, not have Jesus and therefore have nothing. That all throughout the canon of history, 75% of your Bible is Old Testament covenant, not because we can recognize that we're not Jews and celebrate the fact that we're Christians, it's to recognize that as humans, it is possible to have everything, miss Jesus, and get nothing. It is paramount that the scriptures prophesy that and preach to that all the time because what it is basically saying is if you ever think you could read enough Bible that you could actually earn yourself more access to God, go look at the Jews because they read the Bible nonstop. And if you thought that you could ever persevere and pray and, and be you know, diligent and prophesy like Elijah, like if there's any part of you that thinks you could do more and get more things without Jesus... I want you to go read 75% of your Bible and realize there is a group in history that's already done that and they got nothing. That they did everything and had everything and missed Jesus and got nothing. And then the opposite is true, the plot twist, right? Like I remember I heard about this in The Last Dance. Michael Jordan would switch teams in the middle of his practice, right? Like they were losing by 10 to zero and he'd come over and win on the other team if only to show who's really leading the show. That out of this, there was a have-nots group, the Ishmael group, the younger group, the runt of the litter, these people that were have-nots, somehow in that brokenness and humility and hunger, reached out, cried out for mercy, found Jesus, had nothing, and got everything. And that is what is going on with the intertestimonial covenantal history of our Bible, is that you could have everything, miss Jesus, and get nothing, and vice versa, you could have nothing, get Jesus, and get everything. And so he's closing this book up. Why is he closing up? This book with this, with this prophecy, with this, with this reminder, is, is the reminder, as, as, as we've talked about from the theme of this study, is the reminder of this book was written to the church that at any given time, if you lose your way, forget who you are, lose track of the why of your life, you could always go back and read the book of Acts like a photo album, like Google Photos, and remember where you come from, and to remember that the church, as it's been poured out with the Holy Spirit and walked into a new blood covenant where it can engage God boldly and with perseverance, to remember that all of those things were a gift and not a reward. A gift and not a reward, and the Spirit has come to us to be empowered, but not entitled. There's a funny thing about insiderness. That as you've been in church, you know, for 10 and 20 and 30 years, here's the thing, is like if you've been in church for 10 and 20, 30 years, you've probably done 10 and 20, 30 years of stuff. And there's a funny thing about insiderness is that as we do that in Christ, we start to do these things and we start to forget that he's the one that does them, not us. 
And that inside, as we spend too much time potentially in the bubble, we actually start to think that this is done by us when it's not. And it's incredibly dangerous spiritual reality. That's, that's, I think, what is so paramount and important at the end of this book is that we think that by stepping through these doors that we exit and escape spiritual danger when, in fact, there is great spiritual danger everywhere we go, even in this church, right? Because as we come across those doors, we have the propensity, the possibility to walk into this bubble, spend so much time here that we actually think we run it. Then in in doing ministry, right, in, in, in 10 and 20 and 30 years, there's a bitterness that can take place of the things that I thought that God was gonna promise me and the things that I was expecting God to show up for me on. And we see the people that we're supposed to be serving and they're hard to love and they're not consistent and they make promises and they, and they don't deliver on them. And, and, and we start to, to grow, not, not just in, in this entitlement, but this bitterness of, of, of God not delivering on what we think we're owed and what we think we're demanded because we think that it's run by us and we think that it's, that it's ultimately about us. And so this is, I think, the, the sermon in a sentence that, that I get by the end of the time that I read in Acts chapter 28 is that is that the church is not ultimately, you know, evangelism and outreach is not an event it, so much as it is an identity, that a church that is not outward is not a church. A church that ceases to go outward is not a church because here's the funny thing, and you learn it from the older brother in, in, in the parable of the, of the older son and the younger son, is that if the insiders fail to go out, they ironically actually become outsiders. That God is on the go, and he is moving Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, and people that are not going, if we are not outwardly moving, right, with him, we miss him, and we miss the actual essence of what it means to be a Christian, what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus, that evangelism is not just an activity, it is something that, that we are, uh, and I think that's what Acts has been trying to tell us these last 28 chapters. So anyways, verse uh, 17, I'll pick up at the very end of this uh, chapter here, it says, three days later, uh, he called together local Jewish leaders, and they assemble uh, around Paul, and they say to, and Paul says to him, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. So Luke is basically ending with a chorus. It's the, it's the tune of this entire book, that Jerusalem today, the ends of the earth, that Paul always goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And ironically, the ones that shoulda, coulda, woulda seen Jesus first on the front lines ironically miss him, and the ones that are supposed to miss him actually find him. And so the Jews reject while the Gentiles accept. And not only are they rejecting him, they are trying to get rid of Jesus. This is what, uh, you know, they, that, um, that Paul, well, Saul formerly known, Paul formerly known as Saul, and that Continually, you'll see within the book of Acts of the Jews towards, towards the Christians is we want to rid the earth of him, is what they would exclaim as they would tear their clothes at the end of court cases, etc. And so they find him offensive, and they find him um, aggressive, and they find him offensive. And, and so he, they continue to try to pursue him and to not just coexist, but they want to kill him. And so they examine him at, at, in this court case, he says, and... and um, and they wouldn't release me, um, even though I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. And verse 19 says, the Jews obje- objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. And I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you um, and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound in these chains. Um, and so um, to bring up a, a probably irrelevant celebrity that some of you guys don't even know of, because uh, I'm an old geezer like that. I uh, was reading an old uh, a Reddit uh, blog over the weekend about uh, Ashton Kutcher. Anyone know who Ashton Kutcher is anymore? He used to wear a sideways little hat and uh, punk, you know, Justin Timberlake or whatever on the show. 
And uh, he got married to Mila Kunis, who was uh, his co-star. They were young, first love type of dating people in in that show originally. And uh, I think he was dating Demi Moore for a while or whatever. But anyways, he rode off in the sunset with Mila Kunis. And I read this article recently that um, the two of them together have $275 million to their estate. So made some good money, I guess, punkin' celebrities and, uh, and uh, being on Dude, Where's My Car? And so, um, and so this article was really interesting to me because it said um, that basically they had decided between them, they have a few kids separate and kids together, that none of their kids are going to get any of that money. Man, sad day. $275 million. None of the kids get the money. They're going to give all their money away to charity. And this was the quote underneath it. Uh, Ashton Kutcher, maybe wiser than some of us, says, I'm not giving those kids any of that money because I don't want them to become entitled and privileged, and I don't want them to not know the value of hard work and money. He says, that would be, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, right? And, uh, and meanwhile, you know, we're looking at Macaulay Culkin and Justin Bieber and all these things, and uh, we're like, yeah, I know the evidence, but that's $275 million. Like, isn't there some way you can put a trust fund away? I mean, this is $275 million. It's funny how money can really, like, change your whole value system all of a sudden, especially as the numbers go up. I mean, what if they get cancer? You know, what if there's some sickness, you know? And what if they develop like a, you know, a, a weird offensiveness towards you because, you know, you cared about the orphans more than you cared about the kids? Like, it's funny how money can talk, and when money talks, people listen, you know? But he's, he's got a point, right? Because do you know anybody that's handed things for free that isn't somehow ruined by it, right? This is what Jim Carrey says at the end of his career. He's like, I wish everybody had a chance to be rich and famous and realize it's a solution of nothing. It's, it's an awful existence, and what it seems like Ashton Kutcher is trying to do is prevent his kids from that kind of entitlement. Because entitlement, if you think about it, is like the worst of both worlds. It's like a cocktail of ingredients that just ruins somebody's soul, you know, from the inside out. Because number one, <clears throat> what entitlement does for you is it creates a false reality that because my dad's the owner of the company and people listen to me, I think that what I'm doing deserves more than it actually deserves, It creates a disproportionate reality of what I'm deserved and what I'm owed in this life because I'm treated in a certain way. I actually start to believe that I'm better than other people. And that's an awful place for a kid to be, right? Financially or spiritually anywhere else. But then secondly, it makes them a villain in that way, but also sort of a victim because here's what they realize is that while they have everybody kind of jealous of them, everybody's kind of gunning for their position and trying to take their throne, they actually have the dream in their hands, the $275 million or whatever else it may be, And what do they realize is they have in their hand that it's actually not the answer to things. And they have all this wealth, but all that they wish is that they can have a normal life and go to the grocery store and date somebody without wondering if they're trying to date them for their money. So that's the problem of entitlement is this ruins this crippling thing. Even though it's like really hard to conceive of giving away $275 million, million of the alternative of of the curse that hits a person growing up in their formative years having ever things without ever having to know what they're worth. And so Jesus has this diagnostic about the Jews in these consecutive parables. You remember some of these, right? So there's this parable about the Jews, and it's, it's basically that the Jews are like these people that have worked in the field for 12 hours. And the master goes out and hires people to work for 12 hours, but then he starts hiring people at one less hour, paying them the same amount. So the 11-hour person gets paid a dollar, you know, and the 10-hour person gets the same amount. All the way down to one, the person that works for one hour gets paid the same amount as the person with 12 hours. And the guy like who's been working for 12 hours in the field is ticked at the master. And he looks at him and he says, are you so mad that I'm generous? Is what he says. There's another parable, right? Where Jesus um, talks about this older and this younger son and the prodigal son comes home. He wastes away his life and he gives the finger to his dad basically and takes all of his money and runs with it. And he comes home 
And it says the older brother's sitting in the field and he can hear this faint music far off at a party that he wasn't invited to. And he confronts the dad and he's furious. I mean, it says he's livid and he says to the guy, he says, how could you kill the fattened calf for this son who ran away from you and rebelled against you for his entire life? He says, when I've been sitting here this whole time slaving for you, is what the guy says. And the father says, I don't know where you got that from. Don't you know that I've always been with you and everything I have is yours? There's a final parable that made me think of today in terms of this passage of this wedding feast, and the wedding feast is ready, and you have all the guests and all the names and all the people, and you invite, and all the people that live there and had the same bloodline are all invited, but they were too busy to show up. And so he goes out and invites, in this case, the Gentiles to come into it. All of that to show what? That, that spiritual entitlement is, a, is an ugly, crippling disease for the heart. That spiritual entitlement, like it'd be one thing, right, to have financial entitlement, to believe that because my name is Ashton Kutcher that I should be able to have X amount of money and get this amount of privilege. But to spiritually think that because Christ has chosen me, because his spirit has filled me, because I have a church that I belong to and and a ministry that I serve in, that somehow any of that makes me better than anyone else in this world. That's a crippling place to be. That's a cancerous place for our heart to be. And likewise, It also gets very interesting because not only does it make us feel like we're better than people, but an entitlement of being inside the church for too long, thinking that this thing is for us or by us or about us, can actually create this bitterness. This bitterness, because look at the very end of verse 20, for this reason I've asked to see you and talk with you is because of the hope of Israel. I mean, what kind of a jerk is putting somebody on trial for hope? Like, what's so bad about hope that somebody else has hope? that you're mad, that somebody else has hope and you don't have hope. And what is the reason for this Jewish animosity towards Christians that I'm mad and I'm going to persecute you because of hope? Well, here's the reason. Because hope, in the Christian sense, is an exclusive hope. Hope in the gospel, hope in the resurrection, is an only hope. It's not a hope, it's the only hope, and it's exclusive to every other hope. It's offensive to people because it tells everybody about all of the dreams and all of the parenting advice and all the new leaders that they're excited about and the vacation that they're looking forward to and the just get through this next week so that I can get on to the next part of my life. It takes all of those hopes and warns us, doesn't threaten us, but tells us the truth about those hopes. Those hopes lead to death without Jesus. And people don't like that. People then didn't like it and people now don't like it. And that's what it is that's so aggressive about the gospel, right? And so here's, here's what's happening, right? Nobody wakes up when they're four years old, and says, when I grow up, I want to be a bitter old man. Nobody wakes up and says, I want to be a crotchy old man that is jealous of everybody else that's in a good mood, entitled beyond all get at, and and just angry about other people getting stuff that I deserve that they didn't have to work for. Nobody grows up with it, but a lot of people end up there. And here's why. Here's why. Because the heart is a fragile thing. And the proverb says that that hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And the heart, just like you could only take so many hits to your head with a baseball bat before you died. The heart can only take so many hits to their hope before it gets heart sick and broken until it gets so jaded and so calloused and so cold and so bitter that it ended up being the exact same thing that it set out never to be, which is hopeless. And that's when you go look at concentration camps, you go look at people going through suffering, it's not necessarily the food that they have and the things that causes, you know, what causes their survival, their hope or their hopelessness. It's their hopelessness. And so this is what Paul is doing when he's preaching to these Jews and he's preaching to us. He's not trying to steal our hope like some cosmic killjoy. He's trying to save your heart. He's trying to save your heart from the next thing that you're going to get your, I'm going to next husband I'm going to meet is going to be like this and the next this is going to be like that. And these hopes that are lesser hopes, he's not trying to rob something for us. He's trying to save something from us. Save us from our heart becoming bitter and calloused and broken and entitled. And that's exactly how you can miss the Messiah in your midst is putting your hope on something less, putting your hope 
on something less than Jesus. And so uh, verse 23, he goes on and runs the diagnostic of how this cycle continued to happen. In verse 23, it says, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And he witnessed to them from morning until evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And he tried to persuade them about Jesus. I mean, they had all of the signs. They had the, 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 the law and the prophets and the symbols and the heroes and Moses and Abraham, they were all pointing to Jesus and, and they were all good things. I mean, he's saying like, I'm not saying, I'm not abolishing these issues. I'm seeing that Jesus is fulfilling these issues. It's, that, it's not to say that, um, that these things are bad. It's just saying that you've invested your hope into them. You've actually put your hope into this law. There's nothing wrong with having a good life and wanting a good marriage and wanting a good job. It's just the, the question of enjoying them versus putting your hope in them, putting your stakes in them. And so this is how they missed him, is they put their hope in the signs rather than the Messiah. Verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others wouldn't believe. And that was the kind of MO. That was his everyday ethos, is going into places and realizing that some soil is hard while other soil is soft. So some accepted and some rejected from the Jews. In verse 25, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to you. And here's how, this is why prophecy matters. The Holy Spirit already prophesied this a long time ago to your ancestors when he said this through the Isaiah. And this is why prophecy matters so much is that when I get a word from the Lord, I inevitably are going to go into a circumstance that tells me that word is not true. And why it's so critical to be listening to a voice in an era like this and not an echo, because if you're not listening to what God has to say about you, you've got a lot of people telling you what you should think about you. And so there's this conviction in his spirit that he was persevering as they were persecuting him because he had the word of the Lord on his heart. He had a voice and not an echo. And so here's what the diagnostic was of the heart. This is why they could be in the midst of Jesus and miss him. Because ultimately what he's going to say is that we don't see with our eyes, we see with our hearts. A heart that is deferred, a heart that is sick, can't see Jesus. And so verse 26 says, go to this uh, people and say this, I was right in front of you, but you missed me. You'll be ever hearing and never understanding. You'll ever be seeing and never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes and otherwise they might have seen um, with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. So I was uh, close with this story, but I was um, having my uh, after Easter coffee at a, a coffee spot here, here in town, just trying to get my head back together, just figuring out what my life is about and uh, being an introvert, you know, as I am. And, uh, and so it turns out there's a lot of pastors doing that. And so there's a bunch of, um, you know, preachers down there and then like Bob Jones students and uh, there's a couple worship pastors down there. And sometimes when I'm in coffee shops in Greenville, I just feel like pretty unoriginal. I feel like I went on Amazon and just clicked on the pastor button and it sent me an iPad and these sneakers and it just sent me to this coffee shop and that's like my life. I'm like, really? Like we're all just here doing the same thing. Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, the, the, more, the more redeemed side of me is thankful that there are numbers in this place and 60% of Greenville, even though it's super religious, is unchurched. And so I'm, I'm thankful for a really healthy, fraternal circuit of, of preachers and pastors in the area. But, um, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm, and I'm an eavesdropper, man. I can't help it. I listen to people. And, you know, so the one preacher, you know, he was talking, he was younger than me, but he's talking about his sermon, you know, and, and what it was about, and the text, and the application, and the illustrations. And he was excited because people responded, and um, there was um, salvations and, and so forth. And so they were, they were talking about, you know, basically um, the outline, you know, of the sermon. 
And then there's this other uh, worship leader, and I think they were more a liturgical church, and they were talking about the hymns that they picked, you know, but they were good hymns, you know, and man, we picked the good hymns this year, not like last year, that old bozo, I'm just kidding, he didn't say that, um, but just, you know, talking about the worship set and, you know, the excitement of, of planning an Easter set list in the high calendar, you know, Easter, Easter season. And so I'm kind of listening to this, and I'm kind of ha- happy about it, but then kind of, you know, um, tired, you know, at the same time. And, uh, and I sat next to um, uh, this guy, and, uh, and he was just kind of, you know, talking about life, and, and the same question came up, you know, how did your Easter go? And I listened to conversation one, conversation number two, and then this guy's conversation started, and it was totally different. He said, you know, hey, man, tell me about how your Easter went. And the first words out of mouth, his mouth, he goes, it sucked. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is refreshing, you know what I mean? Like a guy that's like really being real, okay, let's talk about this. And, uh, and he wasn't a preacher, and he wasn't a pastor. He's like, oh, it was awful. And so basically what happened is, um, he was uh, in Disney World, which now we're starting to make sense, right? Now, uh, he went down to Disney World on, on a vacation, uh, and he was um, uh, down there also to kind of go to like a, a basketball game, go to like an AAU game that his daughter was a part of. And uh, so he said he was down there in the lines. They went on two roller coasters in 50 hours. Uh, and then he went to the basketball game, and he was sitting there, and uh, he just said he like started to like struggle to breathe. Like he couldn't breathe, and he couldn't get like, deep breaths, and he was like hitting shallow on his breath. And, and then... Um, he, saw, he said like his eyesight kind of like blurred out and he was like black and eyed and, and, and basically kind of walked through with his friend and said he's basically had a panic attack in the middle of this like basketball game. And uh, he said he was just super embarrassed and, you know, he, he just felt like humiliated and kind of like couldn't control and everybody was like looking at him and like his wife had to carry him out and all this kind of stuff. And then, and then he um, ended up, he said he was like trying to recover in, in the room and it wasn't just one day, it was like all seven days, like he could barely you know, make it off of the couch, and, you know, he felt so, because all the extended family had come in, and they were helping him, and all that stuff, and, and he said, you know, and uh, kind of laughed about it, and the guy was kind of nervous, because he bit off more than he could chew, he just wanted to see, like, what songs they sung at his church, you know, and, uh, and he was like, yeah, man, he's like, but, you know, it made me really thankful for my family, he said, um, made me realize how much, you know, we need Jesus, and then he said this interesting thing, he said, um, and it made me think about my resurrected body, like, I just think about how much, you know, our bodies go through wear and tear and how our bodies are really part of the old creation, but there's, you know, like a, a re-resurrection that goes on to give us new bodies, the kind that Jesus walked around, and he's just like, just made me really think about that. And I'm just sitting there, you know, having preached a sermon yesterday, you know, Sunday, and listening to the guys talk about their sermons and their songs and all that stuff, and I thought, there's probably a lot of good sermons, you know, if you went around Easter and Greenville, a lot of good preachers and sermons, but I thought, that's a pretty good Easter sermon. It's <laughs> like, and that's probably really what, more like, you know, what, what the heart and the spirit of the gift of the resurrection is, is, is not just to talk well about Jesus, but to talk to Jesus. To not, to not just, um, you know, rehearse and, 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 and sing about and talk about, but to experience, to experience the power, you know, of the resurrected Jesus. And so I, I remember talking to a, a, a preacher one time, and, you know, his whole life fell apart. He basically went through infidelity in his marriage, and it all kind of fell apart. And I remember talking to him. He, he made this statement to me I'll never forget. He said, so it's hard for you to understand, but like it was the worst moment of my life. There was all of this wreckage and turmoil and chaos and shrapnel that came out of it that hurt you know, my kids and my kids' kids and my church. And so it's hard for me to really like reconcile this. But although it was like the worst moment of my life, it was in some ways like almost the best moment at the same time. Because it marked a point in my timeline, in my history, where before and then after changed, and I could no longer hide. It was a point at which I actually had to lay down 
all of my false religion to actually receive the grace that God wanted to give me in my life, that I could stop hiding and actually be healed. And so I think from a religious standpoint, you know, like there's a false misnomer to think, I've just got to make it. Like maybe if I just like say the right things and keep people at an arm's distance and show the acceptable sins and confess those, but not really talk about the deep, deep dark longings of my heart and, and really open up about the disillusionment and, and some of the resentment that I feel and the entitlement that I feel and the bitterness that I feel, then maybe I'll make it and slide into heaven, you know? And, and there's, there's this misnomer to, to almost expect that to be almost like the best thing that Christianity has to offer, but there's a, there's a potential in that testimony from Easter and the testimony from the preacher that's saying, actually, that might be the worst thing that could happen. That, that, the, that the point of the gospel is not just to make it, it's to be healed. It's to, it's to, um, it's to, fully, um, it's to fully have him um, meet us in that moment and heal us from the inside out. And, and, and how many of us, I wonder, um, carry on and on, hanging on by a thread, protecting and coping because it almost works but miss the actual healing that we exchange hiding for healing or coping for healing and don't, we actually begin, can be able to spend our lives talking about Jesus without actually experiencing him. So this is the verse that Luke wants to close the book of Acts on in verse 28. He says, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. Like in other words, like favor is not favoritism. God is picking who he's picking because he wants to show off who he is. Not the man-made religion or the strength of man, but the power of God within his weakness and so he moves on, first to the Jews, but then he moves to the Gentiles, because God only picks insiders to go out. And so he says, the case is closed, the, the, the covenant of the old covenant is closed, and it's moving on to a new covenant where all are welcomed in by Christ and Christ alone. If you have nothing and you have Jesus, you have everything, is what is going to be the vision and the identity of this church. Therefore, I'm going on without you. And as hard as it hurts me to say this and to do this, I'm moving on without you, I'm moving into the Gentiles, because insiders that don't go out ultimately become outsiders. That ultimately you can, you can be so close to Jesus that you're far from him. You'd be so close to, to the Father. It's like a vaccine. It's like this inoculation that you think you have something because you talk to the right people and say the right words and because you show up at the same place on Sunday. You can have this misconception, this misunderstanding that, that having, little bit, having just a little bit of, enough of God um, actually keeps you from the healing that he wants to give you. And so, so the mission kind of goes on with the Gentiles. It goes on with the Gentiles even in spite of and sometimes despite, you know, the, the, the old Jewish covenant. And I wonder if, if that's why he's sharing this at the end of this passage to say that happened to them. It's, it's no reason why it couldn't also happen to us. That entitlement could creep in and that I can be here for long enough that I can start to think that this is about me, that this is with me, this is for me when it's not. That our kids can grow up, right, in such a safe spiritual environment that it's dangerous. That they grow up in something that's labeled church and called church, but it's not the practice of power, and it's not the meeting of strangers and immigrants, and it's not the preaching of the gospel, and it's not seeing a big God against bigger giants, like, or big giants. It's like, it's, it's, it's this bubble that we could uh, raise ourselves in and walk in for long enough that we actually think that we are entitled to the gospel that we have, and there's a possibility for insiders not to go out and actually become outsiders. And so this is the question I want to close this with in the book of Acts um, that I think uh, gets tied down with this last verse in Acts 28, verse 30. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. 
Like, I like those two words next to each other in verse 30 because it's Paul's house, but he's also renting it. Like, he wants to close us with this picture, this to-be-continued closeout, um, often a sunset picture with, with Paul here, saying that he's responsible for the house that he owns, but he's just borrowing it. That we're responsible for the car that we drive, we're responsible for the house that we have, and we're responsible for the marriage that we have, but we don't own it. We're borrowing it, we're renting it for a short period of time, and we're stewarding it, hopefully. That's what it is. And he welcomes all who come to see him. Verse 31 says, He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. And so the question I have there um, on the screen, you know, is, is basically that if, that if outreach, if, if going out to the nations is, is not an event but an identity, then it's not something to be added to the calendar. It's, it's something to be invited into. It's to invite people into the things that we're already doing. And so I have an aunt, she does hair, and she, she always talks about this, that doing hair is 10% about doing hair and it's about 90% about counseling people. That there is a, there is a chair that you, you and I have. It's not a beauty chair. Maybe, maybe you work at a desk or maybe you work, you know, um, at, a, at a grocery store, you know. Maybe you work online or whatever. But the point is, is that we're here for a short amount of time, two years in the case of Paul, maybe 30 more years in the case of us, and we're renting, we're borrowing, and to take account, I think that's what Acts is kind of saying to us is it's not go and repeat Paul's life, it's follow the one that Paul followed. And ask yourself not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do if he were you? And how would he use your time and your money and your days? That this story is not about extraordinary people doing extraordinary things, that it's about an extraordinary God on ordinary people following him with radical obedience. What does it mean to use the simple things that you are leasing, renting, borrowing, uh, for his purposes. Secondly, that it says that he welcomes people in. The second question I had is, who are you welcoming? That this is all that it is. It's not adding a whole other event. It's actually just inviting people into the witnessing that you already are. That witnessing is not an event or an action. It is an identity, which just means you're inviting people into the thing that you're already doing. And then lastly, um, what does it look like to proclaim the gospel? And there's probably three things that I could think of in reading all 1 through 28 for this book. Um, in, in sharing the gospel. And the three things that come to mind that I see throughout the whole chapter is one, sharing your story. That inviting people over to your home uh, and sharing your story, even if they don't want to hear it. Hey, do you want to hear my story? No, I don't care. I'm just going to share it anyways. You know, like that's, that's the simplicity that we're talking about, not necessarily Billy Graham. Number two, to reason with people. You notice that the sermon of the gospel was preached eight different times in the book of Acts, but it was preached differently to every audience. Because God is not giving speeches, he's meeting people. And we are assuming as we go out that he's already there. And that we are not bringing God anywhere so much as we're joining him. And that he's already been working. And so preaching the gospel is not about telling a speech and getting necessarily all the details right. It is about meeting people where God is already meeting them. In their questions and in their philosophical dilemmas and in their heartache and their hardship is meeting them and preaching the good news within uh, the circumstance that they're already in. And then lastly, the third thing that I thought of in terms of um, ways that the Gospels were claimed all throughout this book is to pray for people. That one of the most powerful things you could do is just say, hey, how could I pray for you? To pray for people that you might one day pray with people and allowing for the church to be the church. But as you see Acts chapter 2 and you see all the things that happen within that miracle of that new community, some of it's what the church is doing, but a lot of it God's doing. And the process of being a witness by simply drawing a line of what we can do and what we are doing and just asking God to do mighty things um, in his name is what uh, witnessing would look like. 
Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 